many thanks indeed, Peter. Let's come to God in prayer before we open up his word together. Our gracious God, we praise and thank you that your word is living and enduring. And we ask that we might crave it this morning, um, as we should, that um, we might grow up in our salvation and taste more and more of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. What would you say characterizes the culture of St. Paul's Banbury? Now, I know that's a very general question, and culture is a pretty complicated and complex term. Um, but what I mean by culture is the way of life, especially the general customs and beliefs of a particular group of people at a particular time. I, d I don't mean the live cultures in your yogurt or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, what would you say? What characterizes our culture? Because the truth is every group, every family, every team, every community, every institution, and every church has a culture, its own values and principles, its own ways of doing things, its own environment. We are all enculturated. By way of illustration, just imagine for a moment a, a, a garden or your garden or allotment, if you have one. And at this time of year, you may be planting bulbs for the spring. And for those bulbs to burst into bloom, you need the right conditions in the soil. That's probably why you cultivate the soil in your garden, by digging it up and turning it over. Of course, depending on the condition of the soil, that can be really hard work. It is in our garden. And to amateur gardeners like me, it can even look a bit destructive. But actually, cultivating the soil at least in, in gardens like mine, ensures that bulbs, the, the bulbs you plant get the air and the water and the nutrients they need to flourish. And it prevents them from being choked by weeds or um, by the, the compact, crusty clay that you might have. Again, what characterizes the culture of St. Paul's Banbury? How's the soil? Is it nutrient-rich and aerated, allowing for growth? Or does it need turning over? And how are we to tell? Well, the passage today helps by showing us something of what a healthy church culture should look like and how to cultivate it. But before we get our gloves on and our spades out, we need to take a step back and survey the whole garden. And you may remember, right at the beginning of the letter, Peter addressed his recipients as God's elect, uh, those chosen by him, precious to him. But he also described them as exiles. They're his chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, but they're not yet at home. And neither are we. In the present, we're scattered. We're living as a minority in a fearful and threatening world where Christians are sometimes met with insults, intolerance, and in some places around the world, injury for their faith. That doesn't sound much like a good life if you're a Christian. And yet, Peter says, the good life 
the good life that people are really seeking can be realized now, even unexpectedly in the midst of suffering by following in the way of Christ. And over the past few weeks, Peter has spelt out what, what that looks like for, for Christians in, um, in, in public, living under pagan rule, for Christian servants working for pagan masters, and for Christian wives and husbands perhaps living with an unbelieving spouse. But now, here in our passage, Peter turns to the whole. Peter summarizes how the whole community should live in relationship to one another and towards outsiders in a way that reflects their calling as the holy people of God. Verse 8, he says, finally, all of you, <clears throat> all of you, all of us, all Christians wishing to tend the garden of the church in the midst of a dry and inhospitable culture around us should take this on board. This is what a good and healthy church culture looks like and how to nurture it. I've summarized the message in three parts. First, we'll, see, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about imitating God's uh, Christ's goodness. Then we'll consider Christ's example. And then we'll um, talk about our confidence in Christ's exaltation. So first, imitate Christ's goodness. Peter begins by outlining some characteristics of the good life, of good soil, if you like, in verses 8 and 9. And all of them are recognized concepts in the world that Peter was writing into, the Greco-Roman world. But through Christian eyes, they're, they're loaded with new meaning and closely connected with Jesus' life and teaching. So he says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Literally, the word Peter uses is about having a common mind. Other English versions say like-minded. Be like-minded, i.e. the church is not a club made up of isolated individuals or autonomous individuals. Each one is part of the body. Again, that's why the lockdowns were so difficult. They tore us apart which is not how we should be. And so in these ever-changing time of transition, we should keep working towards our wholeness, our togetherness, which is exceedingly precious. Because as we've heard from Peter previously, that togetherness was purchased by the precious blood of Christ. However, I think it is worth saying this morning that being like-minded is not the same as being same-minded. Living in harmony with one another doesn't mean thinking the same thing all the time. It probably won't shock you to hear that the PCC don't always agree. Shock horror. <laughs> and, and especially on important things like, say, emerging from lockdown. But crucially, we must remember that disagreement is not necessarily a sign of division. And acknowledging that can take the fear and the heat out of difficult conversations. It's okay to think differently about some things. Only God is all-knowing, not us. So long as we're sensitive to the concerns of others and doing all we can to maintain fellowship with one another. All of you live in harmony with one another. Next, all of you be sympathetic 
to be sympathetic is to move towards someone in what they're going through, both good and bad, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to mourn with those who mourn, just as Christ, our sympathetic high priest, does for us in our weaknesses. And you know, if you look around at the moment, I mean, not just in this building, but in our wider community as a church and, and beyond, there are many, many opportunities to sympathize with one another. What are those opportunities for you as individuals in your grow groups or as a member of St. Paul's? All of you love as brothers. That is, love one another as siblings, love in a way that brothers really should. Later, Peter will expand on this love, which he says covers over a multitude of sins and offers generous hospitality. This love is sacrificial. It lays aside pride. It's generous. It's merciful. It comes from the mercy God extends to us when he drew us in as his people. All of you, be compassionate. The Gospels constantly speak of Christ's compassion for the crowds, the sick, the needy, for sinners. And in the same way, his people are called to show kindness to one another, actively looking, looking out for the vulnerable, looking out for those on the edge, the outsiders, to lay aside grudges. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. All of you, be humble. As co-recipients of the Lord's mercy, there is never a good reason to think of yourself as above someone else in the church family, because Christ humbled himself to death even death on a cross. His death on the cross was for you. How can we possibly have any pride or, or, or sense of entitlement over one, an, one another? All of you, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For me, this is perhaps the most counter-cultural instruction on the list. Not only are we called to love and bless those who already love and bless us, and I, I, I'm, I feel you know, confident saying that about our church family, we really do love, seek to love and bless one another. But we're also called to bless those who actively seek to do us harm. Now, what does that mean? If someone throws a, a book at your head at school, does that mean saying, thank you, I really enjoyed that? <laughs> Does it mean putting on a fake smile when someone says something insulting to your face or something insulting about Christ? Well, no. Again, let's look at the example of Christ here. When Christ was on the cross, being mocked and reviled, slandered, what did he do? Did he mock and revile back? Well, no. Instead, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Instead of retaliating, the way of Christ is to pray and to seek God's favor on those who seek to do us harm. So if you're feeling 
harmed by someone or unfairly treated, whether by someone inside or outside the church, the best thing you can do is to seek to bless them and to pray for them. Of course, goes without saying, that is much, much easier said than done. It's so unnatural to our, our sinful desires, our instincts, but it's the way of the righteous. It's the way of Christ. And actually, it's the way of blessing and a hope-filled, spiritually rich Christian life. For, Peter goes on, verse 10, whoever would love life, he's quoting from Psalm 34, and see good days, he must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The point is, God's people are not exempt from discomfort or pressure or conflict, whether that's with one another or with those outside the church. And, and look, it is true that in the West, in the cultures that we live in, hostility towards the church is on the rise. It's increasing. It's the increasing norm in wider society. And it may well be more costly for our children than it was or is for us to live as Christians in this world. The, temp the temptation when that pressure comes upon us will either be to assimilate into our culture's values, to kind of join in with them, to win them over, or to just hide away and refrain from doing good or from speaking uh, good. But we have a better way of dealing with those who do us harm, to bless them anyway, doing as Jesus did. And in that, the assurance here is that there is divine care, even in suffering. In Christ, God attends to us when we speak and live according to his will. That is a present reality, not just a future hope. On the other hand, so says God's word, we are hindered spiritually when we don't. So imitate Christ's goodness. Enter into his life. Follow him. And in doing so, second, consider his example. According to, this is the second point, but consider Christ's example. According to the church's tradition, Peter, the author of this letter, was himself put to death for his faith. Uh, Peter's final days were spent in Rome. We don't know exactly why um, he went to Rome, but he was probably killed in AD 64 uh, under Nero's term in, in emperor after there was a big fire in Rome and Nero, it says, you know, so says history, um, scapegoated to the Christians, blaming them for this big fire and um, purged the city of, of Christians. And it's probable that Peter was killed in that time. And the ancient historian and theologian Jerome described it like this, and it's up on the screen. At Nero's hands, Peter received the crown of martyrdom being nailed to the cross with his head towards the ground and his feet raised on high, asserting that he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. 
So when Peter says, if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed, he really meant it. To put his words in another way, Peter's saying, in the light of the Lord's care for you, who can actually do you harm? They may cause you to suffer, but no one can take Christ from you. No one can separate you from the love of Christ. Not trouble, not hardship, not powers, not famine, not sword. No one can separate you from the love of Christ. Not now, not in the future. Jesus said in the presence of Peter previously in, in Matthew's gospel, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So instead, revere him. Revere Christ. Live for him. Not only will you be blessed by what you already have in Christ, the assurance of God's love and attentiveness to your prayers now, to his, his presence with you in the moment of suffering, and the sure hope of future glory. It may also lead to an opportunity for witness. Verse 15. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. When people see how you follow Christ, whether at school or at work or in your family or wherever, even when that leads to pain and difficulty, they may say, why? Why, why are you living like this? How? How is it that you don't fear what we fear? What makes you so confident in the face of suffering or even death? And we say, because of Christ. Because it's by Christ's suffering and death that we've been given life. Verse 18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The truth is, there is nothing more frightening than what Jesus has already faced for us. He doesn't lead his people towards threats he can't or, or won't confront himself. And he doesn't abandon us when he leads us to those really scary places. But there's even more to give us confidence in him in these words. He's not only faced and confronted evil and death, the biggest of enemies himself, he's defeated them once and for all. And to this we turn to part three, where Peter says, remain confident in Christ's exaltation. I say Peter says, that's my summary of his words, remain confident in Christ's exaltation. A few weeks back, I mentioned that I was going to uh, my first rugby match in about two years to support my team, uh, Harlequins. Um, apologies if you're not a rugby fan or anything, but I was going to see them play at home at the Stoop against Bristol Bears, and um, I can't tell you it was even better than I could possibly imagine, because we went down 21-0 in the first half. In a period of about 10 minutes, they scored three tries, three converted tries, and despite getting one back, at half time, it was 24 to seven to Bristol. We looked dead and buried. And then the Harlequins, I, I can sense kind of music in the background, you know. <laughs> they emerged from the, 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 the dressing rooms, ran back onto the pitch, 
and it all changed. They scored seven more tries in the second half and won 52-24. And after each one, we cheered and celebrated. It was raucous. I lost my voice. And at the end, we all let out this big cry of victory together with the team on the pitch. Amazing. And that, I think, is just a pale reflection of what's going on in verse 19. I'll read from verse 18. Christ was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. And then he went and preached to the spirits in prison. He, as we say in the creed, descended to the dead. That is the spiritual realm of the dead, also known as uh, Sheol in the Old Testament, or Hades sometimes in the New Testament. And there he proclaimed his victory over evil, over evil spirits and death itself. In other words, Holy Saturday, when we remember Christ's descendant, uh, his descent to the dead, is the beginning of Christ's exaltation. Now, I should say, in case that raises some probably significant questions, and you're welcome it would be good, actually, to, to chat more about this afterwards. I should say Martin Luther, Martin Luther describes this verse as a wonderful text, but also a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament. So there are other interpretations of this verse. And you know what? That's okay. Someone asked me recently, just this week, um, a really excellent question, which was, um, do you need to be a scholar to understand the Bible, to grasp the message of the Bible? And the truth is, the answer is, no, of course not. God really does meet with us in his word such, such that tr uh, children can truly know him. They, like any person in Christ, can hear his voice. And at the same time, no one not even scholars can fully grasp it. If we could fully comprehend and exhaust the message of Scripture, we would either be God, which we're not, or the Bible would not be of God, which it is. So take comfort in the fact that Scripture is so wonderfully rich, so deep and diverse, that no one can fully take it in. It shows it's from God. And take comfort in the fact that God is so good and so gracious and so great that anyone can meet with him truly in, in these words. Now, that's just a little aside. But keep it in mind as we come to our closing verses, which um, in some ways don't get any easier. Reading from verse 18 again. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Come and chat to me afterwards if you want to know my thoughts on the identity of those spirits from the days of Noah. It's not essential information now, I don't think, in the time we allowed. So I, I, I hope that's not a, a cop-out, but um, we're going to keep moving in the interest of time. In it, in, in the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. 
not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Baptism saves you? Is that what it's saying? Is that right? Well, actually, yes. Insofar as baptism is a sign of the invisible reality of our entry into resurrection life in Christ. It's a sacrament through which we truly participate and speaks of our union in him. In Christ, who died for sins, descended to the dead and proclaimed his victory, who rose from the dead in vindication and triumph, and ascended into heaven where he is rightly and gloriously reigning over all powers. The church is inseparably bound to that Christ, both in his suffering and glory, his going down into the water and his coming through it. So don't be surprised by unjust suffering. It's part of the Christian life in Christ. However, as it was with Christ, this suffering is not the final note, nor is it meaningless. It provides an opportunity to, do, uh, to turn from evil and to do good and thereby to experience the Lord's blessing and vindication both now and, of course, more fully in the final resurrection. So as we close, let's return to the question we started with. How's the soil? What characterizes the culture of St. Paul's Banbury? Like my garden at home, it's probably got some flourishing areas, um, some really good areas of growth that um, are doing well and some areas that need attention. Let's go on reflecting on what those things are together. But whatever the condition of our soil right now, we can look forward in hope to this next season in our church's life. Because in his mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's shown us the way to grow in that. By imitating Christ, by living in him, by considering his example of suffering for doing good, which purchased our salvation, and by remaining confident in his exaltation, his victory, his vindication in glory. Let's pray to close. Our gracious Lord, we simply want to praise you for the confidence that we can have in you and in what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for your wonderful grace. Um, thank you that um, we live in that and enjoy that. And we pray more and more, Lord, that you would make these things a reality to us so that when we face suffering and trial and pressure and disagreement and hard times, uh, we might be able to really, truly grow and flourish uh, in Christ. Um, please give us a, a deeper sense of the reality of our union in him, and please would you continue to minister to us individually and as a church. 
would we know your attentiveness to our prayers, your com the comfort of your presence. And please help us to, um, to go in this way together as one, uh, one um, whole people of God. In Jesus' name, amen.